Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. Today we'll be talking about industry disruptors. In other words, maybe some innovative evolutions, some new alternatives, some new technologies, some some game-changing technologies, uh, whatever you want to call it, some really cool new stuff, as I like to call it. We're going to talk to, of course, the Battery Blarney duo of George and Alan and get their take on some of these new technologies. And we're also going to have a guest later on to talk about uh, popularity of lithium-ion and some new applications in, in that realm as well. So really looking forward to it. Without further ado, let's let's get into it here with George and Alan. How are you guys doing? Uh, ready to talk about some industry disruptors? We'll let's try. Just, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Let's start with you, Alan. I know you don't like that name, industry disruptors, which I can hardly say. Why not? What do you, what do you think we should call it? Industry innovations, industry changes. You know, we're not really disrupting anything except the uh, legacy way of doing things, and uh, it's just a it's a strange word for me, as disruptive as I am usually. But you mentioned uh, lithium-ion batteries. No, no doubt we'll discuss that. As you know, I'm not a big fan. So uh, let's lead off by asking George what he thinks happening in the industry that is of significance at the moment. Well, like Alan, uh, I'm not a great uh, lover of the, the word disruptors. It, it seems to be something that... Uh, has come out of, shall we say, the West Coast and Silicon Valley. Uh, They always want to change things. The problem we have is it's not that we don't have innovation in the battery world uh, to a certain point. The the biggest problem we have is that the industries we deal with are very, very slow to accept anything that hasn't been around for 20 years. Um, It may be something to do with the age of all of us that are still um, holding court as alan and i are are now but as i say the, i don't don't totally like the word disruptors because it's it's more of an evolution the battery industry has been around since 1859 or and before that but 1859 since a, a good friend mr planted is came up with the first rechargeable ba- uh, lead acid battery and uh, basically everything that has gone on has gone on from that on a, you know, everything has evolved from that original uh, concept. So, what's your thought on that, Alan? Well, you're certainly right about the uh, reluctance to change, and a very good example of that is the utility industry, which we'll probably talk about shortly. You said that it comes out of Silicon Valley, the term disruptors. A lot of these terms uh, kind of confuse our generation, George, and. Uh, as you say, some things to be around for 20 years, but I guess we've been around for 40 years in the industry. However, as I said, uh, or George says, things are things are slow to change. Most of the battery-backed industry grew out of the telecom industry. Up until quite recently, they were the largest users of uh, stationary batteries in the world. How come? Well, when the telecom industry started growing, they 
realized quickly that they had to have some form of uh, backup power for a number of reasons. One is obvious is that if they don't have power, they, they're not creating revenue. Uh, less obvious one is the, the fact that they were carrying 911 service. And consequently, the states and the federal government regulated what they had to do. Uh, one of those regulations was, depending on the function of the exchange, a telephone premise, uh, was to provide four hours battery backup. So this uh, batteries around at the time were lead-acid batteries, mainly pure lead, plantain cells in Europe. But the first disruptor came, in my belief, in the uh, United States, where all the telecom industry was, industries were controlled by something called Ma Bell, the Bell Companies, and uh, the Bell Companies research arm, Bellcore. So at the time, they were using in North America lead antimony batteries. Now, lead antimony batteries, well, what that means is that the, an antimony additive was applied to the lead. Uh, the idea was this for mainly for strengthening purposes. One of the disadvantages was that they, as the battery aged, it required more watering. So Bell Labs, in their wisdom, decided to look around and see what else they could do. So they came upon a calcium additive. So the batteries of choice became lead calcium batteries. That was in North America. The rest of the world saw different and stuck with the tried and true plante or pure lead batteries because Bell Labs decreed that the phone companies would start using lead calcium batteries in North America. Everything changed. One of the problems with lead calcium batteries is that the calcium added to the lead causes expansion of the lead and consequently expansion of the positive plates, which gave rise to a lot of failures. So to me, George, that was the, that was the first disruptor. Well, you, you, you can call it a disruptor, but it was simply a matter of evolution to meet a requirement. And that's, that is really the history of the battery industry, isn't it? Everything we're talking about here came about because of another change and a requirement to change. The, uh, if we follow on for the lead calcium, we have the point at which the uh, telephone companies could no longer, but with the, the growth of these developments, housing developments outside the city area, the telephone companies could no longer provide telephone service. It was too far for the 48 volts to uh, down that cable and still provide standard telephone service. So they came up with a way to uh, basically concentrate the telephone calls into a couple of cables, send it down to a box where it was all split out again. We all know these boxes are the yellow ones that sit at the entrances to developments and people complain about because they look ugly. Uh, but they were the only source of uh, telecom service to those places. The problem was that A, they didn't want them to be too big, and B, the concept of having to go out and water them all uh, became, you know, was, was ridiculous. The, the telephone companies did not have that level of staffing or ability to support. Uh, a lot of batteries that needed watering. So they, uh, they talked to the battery companies and we came to the next one, I suppose we could call as, uh, shall we say, a development, was the valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, either gel cells or the AGM. But the, the whole point about this is that 
it wasn't a new technology at that time. The battery companies had known about how to make, or at least the concepts behind valve-regulated cells for years. They simply just hadn't done it because nobody was asking them for it. And that, I suppose, is part of the history of the of this whole in- industry, is that they, uh, they only do things when they are being forced into it. Do you agree? Well, you kind of led into the next thing, George. Very, very well done. Uh, valve-regulated lead-acid batteries. As you say, they, the concept was around, uh, first developed by Gates, Gates Rubber Company, believe it or not. But they were pushed on the market too quickly. Uh, they had several teething problems. Uh, indeed, uh, some of them were so bad that they, that was the impetus to uh, start BATCON, but that's another story. The valve-regulated lead-acid batteries in their infancy didn't really work. They were misapplied, they were misused, and the manufacturers started pointing picture, uh, fingers at the users, and the users started pointing finger, fingers at the integrators. However, uh, over the last, uh, I guess it's 30 years now, George, that the valve-regulated lead-acid batteries have been in popular use. They've improved dramatically, but uh, lithium-ion batteries, now they're being pushed on us, uh, and I, I mean pushed, but I, I, I like to think like the initial valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, they're not ready for prime time yet. There's too many problems, and uh, everybody's rushing to try and sort some of these problems out. But in my mind, Lithium is not necessarily the way of the future. A lot of money being poured into it, mainly because of electric vehicles. But there are other technologies out there, hydrogen-based uh, of energy storage, uh, different types of chemistries for batteries, including one that I think is, uh, shows a lot of promise, and that's, that's zinc batteries. So here we go again, George, you know, VRLA all over again, I guess, with lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, I'd, I'm not quite sure as to... The people that are pushing the lithium iron most are the UPS industry. And I think that's more a matter of uh, getting the size of the battery cabinets down to match the smaller size of the the UPS modules they're building. The the thing that still puzzles me is that we had, uh, it was 2018 edition of the NFPA1, the fire code, actually placed a lot of restrictions on lithium and other new technologies in the amount of uh, material that can be in a in a room in an area uh, to try and restrict the, uh, the the fire risks that the uh, the fire marshals see as a problem with lithium uh, they also have a, a a role that i'm not quite sure how the the ups manufacturers are selling in in new york city for example because they one of the rules is is that you can't install one of these modern batteries in a space that cannot be reached by the uh, the fire ladder, which is effectively three stories up in New York, and neither can they be located at a level below what you can access from ground. So in other words, this probably can't go much more than, I think it's 30 feet below ground level, which takes you down to typically about the third level of a basement in New York. The only problem I've got is that any batteries I've ever worked on in New York, well, at least the ones that were in the basement, were always about six floors down, and uh, because that that was the strongest floor in the building, it was ground level. So, as I say, I I think there are lots of limitations with what they're going to be able to do. I just don't understand why they're being pushed as much. 
it's called, uh, I guess, uh, just follow the money, George. It's called government grants and things like that, all been driven by the electric vehicle industry. But if you remember with valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, uh, customers wanted something smaller, something cheaper, uh, something more environmentally friendly. So the manufacturers come up with this thing called sealed, what they call sealed lead-acid batteries, which are sealed maintenance-free lead-acid batteries, which, as you know, were neither sealed nor were they maintenance-free. The maintenance of lithium-ion batteries is kind of a little bit wishy-washy at the moment. But the big thing about them is this, although there's a lot of developments, you know, with a lead-acid battery, it's 99% recyclable. With a lithium battery, we don't know at the moment. Although there's a lot of money being poured into the recycling. But there's also an infinite amount of lithium, infinite amount of cobalt. Uh, none of these things are environmentally friendly, you know, the mining of them. So that's just my opinion. There needs to be another chemistry or different chemistries that are more environmentally friendly and also uh, safer to use. So that'll be the next big development in my mind in the battery side of it. But uh, what I'd like to do is move on to the, uh, you know, every battery has to have a charger. So I'd like to move on to the uh, charging side of things. And what's your opinion on what's happening there, George? I know you're very close to it with some of the things that were happening in the uh, utility industry. Yeah, because in fact, if we go back to the introduction of the VRLA cells, uh, that also forced a change in uh, rectifier technology because, again, the uh, in order to keep these cabinets as small as possible, uh, there simply wasn't space for the uh, 50 or 60 hertz uh, transformer-based uh, rectifiers. So they, uh, they worked very hard at the development of what we now refer to as switch mode rectifiers that operate at a much higher frequency and the transformers are very much smaller. And that, that, that has evolved over the years. The next thing I think is going, has to happen, and is already starting to happen within the, the charger industry, is where the, uh, especially with something like lithium, where the battery has to be controlled in order to maintain its safety. If you over or undercharge a lithium battery or operate it at too high a temperature, you will get a fire. It's as simple as that. And that's one of the things that worry me. You Earlier on, you mentioned the fact that money takes it. Well, here's the problem is that the, the actual supply of lithium has been locked up by a couple of countries. And uh, so therefore, anybody that wants to make a lithium battery is going to effectively be paying the same amount for the raw materials, the raw active materials, the lithium and the cobalt, if you don't have your own supply of it. So if a manufacturer is then trying to reduce cost, the only way they, the only thing they have to reduce cost at that level is the control systems, the safety control systems. And as we both know, uh, regrettably, um, people will cut corners. People will get away from safety just in order to reduce the price. And that's part of the thing that worries me about that part of it. But what do you think on that one? Like previous podcasts, George, I get worried when we agree on things. But however, great minds think alike, I guess. But I'll agree. That's one thing I'll agree with you on. Okay. The, the charging side of things, uh, we've all seen uh, the development of uh, the switch mode rectifier. And uh, that's come a long way. But uh, our good friends and the utility industry who tend to be uh, 
quite aware of uh, battery backup systems uh, have failed us in certain respects in that they haven't figured in redundancy and they haven't really kept with the times with respect to battery chargers. I think with the uh, advent of the switch mode rectifier in particular, that the recent utilities industries didn't sign on for the switch mode rectifier is because they were fan cooled. The electronics were fan cooled uh, in the most part. And uh, they didn't like that idea of a single failure mode with the fan. But anyway, uh, with the developments in convection cooled switch mode rectifiers, I think the industry, the utility industry, is or will adopt these and enable them to uh, build in redundancy. And I think that's going to be a great step forward for the for you know for the utility industries. Uh, UPS industry is a different ball game altogether. I've had a lot of experience with some of the things that have happened there, and uh, the battery is an afterthought. The battery charger is an afterthought. In actual fact, in some UPS systems, I've seen that the battery chargers were so bad because they weren't properly filtered or regulated, but they were cheap. Uh, but they were so bad that they actually caused the failure of the battery. I think the UPS industry has got to take a long, hard look at this. And I think they may be forced into it uh, by certain rules and regulations, especially to do with efficiencies and uh, the amount of batteries that they, you know, they have out there. So, but maybe we can look at it from a different aspect, maintenance. You know, these new technologies have to be maintained. The lead-acid batteries, the maintenance procedures are tried and true. Everybody agrees. It's a consensus of documents, all the IEEE standards. But uh, I don't know where we're going with maintenance for some of these other uh, technologies. So if you have any idea about that, George, then I'd like to talk about uh, maintenance companies themselves. But uh, I'd like to see what your thoughts are on the maintenance of lithium all the very lithium chemistries and some of these other energy storage devices. Actually, Alan, before I talk about that, I'd like to go back to something else you mentioned about the the question with the utilities about um, not wanting fans in the switch mode rectifiers and uh, and now looking towards the uh, generation of convection cold. The interesting fact about that is that, in fact, the very first switch mode rectifiers that were developed were actually developed back in the UK, and they were developed for British Telecom, and they were convection cooled. They were not fan. They were not fan cooled at all. Uh, in fact, the uh, the company that built most of them, you and I both worked for at one point. It, by the time we worked for it, it was called Advanced Power. But the engineering department, which I had the pleasure of running for a, a couple of years almost in, over in the UK, one of the things that I, I was there for was to to move from the convection cooled rectifier to the to the fan cooled one, and that was back in let me think about this ninety um, eight. That was that. It's a long time ago now, but uh, that was when we they were starting to move. As I say, the original the original switch mode rectifiers were all convection cooled. What we're doing now is just basically coming back round in a circle again. Interestingly, at the point at which Fans are now far more reliable than they ever were. With respect to maintenance, yeah, um, maintenance is is a challenge for all of the technologies at the present moment. Unfortunately, the within any organisation, 
maintenance is not perceived to be a value. It doesn't have a profit center. It can't produce a profit. It's simply in overhead. And as you know, the attitude of most uh, boards and financial people is we want to reduce the overheads. And and unfortunately, the the primary overhead within any battery maintenance plan is personnel. And as we know, that that is also the thing that most companies want to uh, reduce. So, uh, yeah, that is a problem. But you're right all over. Then if we want to look at the actual maintenance of the the lithium batteries, for example, there is no real maintenance to it. The battery itself, as I mentioned earlier, has to have its own controller, or as they refer to it, a battery management system. And it basically tells you what to do. If If it decides that that battery is at risk, it will simply take it out of service and you have to go and replace it. Uh, so in some ways, it is almost dumbing down the uh, the, the maintenance requirements. And uh, I think that's part of the problem is the uh, if we go back to when you and I started in this business, uh, the maintenance people were, were skilled personnel. They were, they were people that um, knew their batteries inside out. They, uh, they didn't need lots of test equipment, a hydrometer and a, a fluke meter was their standard tool. And their eyes and ears and, and nose, in many cases, told them exactly how the battery was behaving and whether it was behaving properly. Today, the, the people that are used for that type of maintenance, no longer, they're no longer taught any of that, unless they do one of our courses, of course. But they, the whole point is that they, a lot of them, uh, as I get fed back when I'm, when I'm actually doing that level of teaching, is that they are sent out to collect the data. They don't understand why they're collecting it. They don't understand the value of the data or to be able to look at it and analyze it because they simply collect it and they send it to somebody else. In many cases, as one one gentleman told me at one lesson was that um, he'd actually sent data in about a battery and the next time he he went in there to do the maintenance, there were three new batteries that he knew nothing about. Somebody else had made a decision and he wasn't told about it. And obviously the problem with that is the, pe- the personnel start to feel totally disconnected from the doing the job. So you lost the, the key element of the permanent maintenance people who actually knew the, the systems. Uh, one of the things I've noticed within the maintenance side of the industry is that there's been an amalgamation, a joining together, shall we say, of some of the uh, major installation and maintenance companies some of the more reputable ones. And now we have a couple of uh, umbrella companies, I call them, uh, like uh, Concentrix and Exponent or something like that. All these words seem to, all these titles, company names seem to be the same to me. But anyway, I worry a little bit about this because as you've seen in the past, more is not better. And uh, here we have uh, some of the traditional maintenance companies. They all come under the, the one umbrella, and I don't know whether that's going to work or not. You know, they're not focused on their real expertise, but they're focused on an overall uh, maintenance, uh, shall we say, system, whether that be traction batteries, whether they be stationary batteries, whether they be uh, motor power batteries. So I don't know if I'm a big fan of that, but it certainly is happening. But what I'd like to do is try to move forward a little bit and think and talk about you know, what's going to happen in the future? And uh, one of the things that caught my attention recently 
reading something about Tesla and uh, not the motor company, but the Mr. Tesla. He predicted several several things, some of which have come true, including uh, uh, wireless telephony, the laser beam. But one of the things he predicted is that sometimes in the future we would have wireless transmission of power. And I think when that comes about, it's going to make a lot of differences. And I'll give you an example. If you have an electric vehicle, one of the problems at the moment is charging it. You know, you just can't uh, plug it into any, uh, any wall outlet and charge it, really. But imagine that if electric vehicle pulls up to a traffic light, and if you know for traffic lights, you know, they have sensor pads there. Uh, some of them do. You know, the sense of magnetic sense of their cars there and manipulate the traffic lights. But imagine if you had a, some form of electromagnetic charger uh, buried in the road. And when an electric vehicle pulled up the traffic light and stopped, it would receive a charge. I can take this a step further. This could have tremendous bearings on the cellular industry, especially microcells of uh, remote charging or wireless charging. So uh, what do you think about that? It's interesting. We have it, you know, if you think about it, we, we already have it in the form of wireless charging of our cell phones. You, we no longer, if you have a, a modern cell phone, you can have a, a mat that um, you simply lay your phone on and it charges it while it's there, which is great. In a household with multiple cell phones, the ability to, to drop every one of them on a single mat frees up quite a few of the uh, power receptacles in the house. But, uh, yeah, it, it's already been worked on. I, uh, in my previous employment, before I theoretically retired, we actually worked with uh, Disney. Disney were looking at uh, doing wireless charging of their uh, trolleys out in Disney World in California. The idea was that um, every time the, uh, the trolley stopped to load and unload, the, uh, the, the vehicle got charged. There was a partial charge. The biggest challenge you have with, with, I'm not quite sure where that ever went to uh, because I left the company shortly after that project, but um, it, had a, it had a few problems because the, uh, the, the monitoring system wasn't, wasn't as waterproof as it needed to be when there was a California rainstorm. They don't come around very often, but uh, when they do, they tend to be pretty violent and uh, some things didn't work as well as they should have done. But anyway, that was beside the, the point was that it was, a, it was an experiment. And at least based on some of the data I saw, it was working. The, the biggest challenge you have with that is that the battery spends a lot of its time operating in a partial state of charge. And uh, very few batteries like operating in partial state of charge. They like to either be charged or fully discharged, discharging, you know, not this back and forward, back and forward. I know we're, we're kind of running out of time here, George, but I think one of the biggest challenges not a disruptor, but a challenge, which would be a disruptor to the industry at the moment, is to find some way of recycling lithium-ion batteries. That's the way we're going to go, and it looks like we've been forced in that direction, uh, not through choice, but uh, that's the biggest challenge at the moment. And I know there's a lot of money being plowed into it, so recycling seems to be an afterthought sometimes for some of these exotic uh, chemistries. So that's the challenge for the future. So can I go back on something you said? Uh, you talked about when you talked about the amalgamation of a lot of the uh, the small service companies into larger organisations. 
I have expressed my concern to a number of people about that in the last few weeks, because in the past, uh, that has been tried a number of times. We looked at the idea of trying to to create a, a network of uh, using all these small mom and pop companies at one point when we were together many years ago. The problem is, and it's a problem that I think happens in every industry, this is not just to the, to the, the battery companies or the service companies, is that whenever you try to amalgamate the small, smaller successful companies, and I'll put that as smaller successful, each of these companies have developed their own personality, shall we say. The company we're working with at the present moment, Eagle Eye, we have uh, our uh, co-founders there have a very strong force about what they want the company to be like and our attitude towards customers and all that. And that's very important. But if you try to take companies that have got all the different personalities and you try to make them all into one, it, it doesn't work. We, I, I just don't think we have come up with the right idea. And I'm not sure that the people that are behind these amalgamations, shall we say, understand some of that correctly. You know, we, we, we think about it, we're seeing it today post-COVID that companies want their staff to come back and do exactly the same as they did pre-COVID. And people are rebelling at it. They're simply saying, well, I'm not coming back and doing that for the amount of money you're paying me. There is a change in the workforce attitude. And unless the management side starts to understand that, we're going to see problems. I, I think that the way that Eagle Eye are doing it, where we are, we are growing by hiring people and growing our own departments out in a, in, a, in, a, in a growth manner, whereby the people that come in get absorbed into our culture is the best way to do it. Just simply picking up another company and trying to make it work doesn't actually work. But that's just, that's, I say, that's very much my... We went through it, Alan, when we uh, APC bought Advanced Power. You know, it was a total change in culture there, as you know. Though it didn't work, they effectively uh, closed the company down that they'd paid $75 million for within two years. They closed it down completely. It was four years, George. Was it four? Of course, I was there for the four years. The yeah, whole, they, got, the whole they got rid of me before then. The whole painful four years. So, <laughs> yeah. well, what I'd like to mention, George, uh, I know it's also something very close to your heart. Uh, one of the future things, you're going to see a lot more monitoring, a lot more battery monitoring. For the very reason that you just said, you know, lack of qualified, lack of skilled manpower. Some of these battery monitors are getting quite sophisticated. Now, I'm not talking the battery management systems, which is a completely different kettle of fish, but uh, battery monitors themselves. Uh, the thing that worries me about that is, uh, as you well know, PRC 005-whatever it is at the moment, but it hasn't changed since dash two, says that if you have a battery monitor on a system, you don't need to really do a lot of stuff, which still scares me a little bit. But however, what scares me more is that people are putting battery monitors on systems and they don't know how to analyze the data. So essentially, they're wasting their time. So I think there's a big hole there. I think there needs to be a lot of people like uh, battery analysts, shall we call them, just like financial analysts and other uh, types of analysts, where they sit and look at the data, look at the figures. Look and see what's happening. Fair enough, a lot of it can be taken care of by machine learning, artificial intelligence, but it still needs the, the nut behind the wheel. In other words, it still needs the human intervention to look at these uh, 
the results of the battery monitoring, uh, try and make some sense, try and make uh, some predictive analysis, that sort of thing. So to me, that's, that's a disruptor at the moment. In other words, putting all this money into battery monitoring, but uh, not really analyzing results. Your thoughts, your thoughts on that, George? Well, you, you're, you're absolutely right. This is getting boring. We agree too much. We're going to have to start arguing about something. But no, they, they, the, the whole point about it is that the, uh, the analysis is the key to it. And uh, unfortunately, the, a lot of people are putting a whole basis onto the fact that you can do uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence. The, the biggest problem with that is, as um, I did some speaking at a couple of utilities um, basically at education day for their, uh, their professional engineers. I was one of the speakers and there was a gentleman that followed me in the afternoon. Uh, he was talking about the use of artificial intelligence. But the thing that made me most interested because of all the people I've ever heard talk about artificial intelligence, he was the only one that ever said, you know, artificial intelligence on its own, people will try to sell you software that's going to do all this for you. The problem is that unless you have a subject matter expert or somebody that really understands what they're talking about to guide that software, that you have to you have to guide the software in the direction you want it to go. Basically, it can do all the calculations so much faster than you can. It can look at the data and it can report the anomalies, but you have to teach it what the anomalies are going to be and how important they are in the analysis part. And I think that is missing from a lot of the stuff that we're looking at uh, today. So that will, that until that's sorted out. But the other the other aspect of it is is that we um, it, it comes back to the same thing: is that you send the data to somebody to analyze, but the uh, other person is the one that goes and does the visual inspection, and there doesn't seem to be any correlation between the visual inspection and the data, which is, as you know, is crazy. It's the most important part of it. But let me, let me carry on. You, the other thing you mentioned earlier was this whole subject of uh, chargers. What changes were there in the chargers? Well, uh, there is some work being done now uh, on um, making the chargers uh, work with the batteries themselves. In other words, uh, in order to try and reduce the, uh, the amount of work that the battery management system within a lithium battery is having to do if the battery is getting into trouble, is the ability for the battery pack to talk to the charger and actually turn the charger down to reduce the, the charging voltage and current, which will effectively remove some of the problems on the battery. Um, and the, the system will still continue to work. There isn't a problem. So that's one of the, I think, is one of the safety factors that uh, we could start looking at. Yeah, this is, uh, this, you're talking about temperature compensation or charge current control, George. No, no, this is, this is even more so than that. The actual uh, the battery management system within the lithium battery is talking to the charger, and the charger is uh, responding based on the instructions it's getting from the battery. It's not just temperature compensation. It, it's actually been told to pull the, pull the voltage back. Uh, the only problem with it is, is that there is absolutely no standardization on it. They, so, you know, that, that's one of the problems. And the other, the other problem is, with respect to the utility industry, you have to remember that we have we have a couple of companies that uh, tend to be dominant in the industry that don't do switch mode. So it's it's definitely their focus to maintain the uh, 
the old uh, 50, 60 hertz uh, charging systems. Well, this is going to change, George, uh, I firmly believe. But let me have a, may not be a final word here or maybe a penultimate word. But one of the things that really scares me at the moment is the proliferation of data centers. Data centers consume a heck of a lot of power, uh, so much so that certain countries, many in Europe, are running out of power. I read an article, uh, I think it was on the IEEE Spectrum magazine recently or something like that, that in 10 years' time it's predicted that in Ireland, for example, uh, or as I can quote that, is that in 10 years' time, the data centers in Ireland will be consuming one-third of the total power generation. Now, we're not going to do this with photovoltaic. We're not going to do this with uh, wind. We're not going to do this with... Uh, they won't let us do it with coal anymore, fossil fuels. So uh, how are we going to do it? Uh, so my bet is small uh, nuclear reactors, fusion. My good friend, uh, Mr. Elon Musk, uh, he agrees with me there, and he's kind of endorsed the idea. But uh, that's my big worry at the moment. That's going to be a huge industry disruptor, the lack of available power, electrical power. But do you realize that one of the reasons why they are using so much power is because in order to achieve what they are trying to achieve, this 5.9's reliability part, they are duplicating everything over and over again. You, you, Google, for instance, has... Uh, data centers that duplicate the data all over the world. And even within the data center itself, often the stuff is duplicated so that if a, a server fails, it's immediately transferred to another one. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why they, although they get very upset about power failures, uh, a lot of them can survive a power failure if you, uh, if you duplicate it enough. They, uh, look, some of the, some of the data, last data centers I was involved in before I retired, they had 70-odd UPS cabinets outside with their own transformers, with their own generators, all around the building. And they, they, they weren't working, you know, they, they, uh, the two UPSs weren't working flat out. One was effectively backing the other one up in some cases. Totally but, inefficient. Totally totally, inefficient. I, absolutely. We need to look at efficiency as much as anything else. So I think Beluxon, uh, and David, he's just about to say to us, time to wrap it up, guys. Yeah, I think that'll do it. Great conversation on uh, disruptors and innovation and technology and kind of where we've come from and, and where we're heading. So thanks a lot, guys, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Well, Alex, hey, thanks for joining the podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just to kick things off today, just wanted to first start with maybe an introduction about you and your company, what you do at the company, and a little bit of history about the company. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Alex Smith. I'm currently the uh, chief technology officer at a startup company called Moxie and Power. Um, and we're developing, I think the best analog is a replacement for temporary power for diesel generators. Um, on the actual product side, it's a uh, battery pack with an inverter mounted on a trailer. So it uh, seems relatively simple. My background is uh, heavily in automotive and electrification. I previously ran the advanced battery development group at a car company called Neo. Uh, they're based out of China, so not not super well known in the states. Prior to that, I worked at LG Chem, 
uh, another battery company, and I did several automotive programs for. Uh, we did the Chrysler Pacifica Hybrid plug-in battery pack, the 48 volt system for the Ram 1500, and another kind of similar 48 volt system for Ford. So, with all those those companies, everything that you did was kind of on the electrification side of elect- of vehicles, not not the fossil fuel type. That's correct. Yeah. So I've, I've been, uh, in electrification for probably about 15 years now, uh, started off actually in heavy duty truck and bus. Um, but yeah, it's, I would say very heavy into electrification. And when you guys started your company, what was it about diesel, diesel generators? Like you said, you basically have a battery pack with an inverter system. Um, typically the, what I would say is similar as that is a diesel engine with, uh, an, an inverter system kind of built into it there generating power. What was it about that market that made you jump ship kind of from kind of the EV world, which was the thing of the future and and probably a lot of opportunity for you there to go out and start this company and focus on that kind of niche market? Yeah, well, I guess that uh, it kind of boiled down to, you know, in California, we have a lot of public safety power shutoffs uh, that are weather related. So, you know, every time the wind blows, they take down sections of the grid and then all of these diesel generators pop up. Um, and so, you know, you start seeing them all over the place and start asking questions of, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, they're spewing black smoke. They're loud. They're obnoxious. They're leaking all over the place. Um, and so we kind of we really started with, you know, that's the problem is this temporary power need. And it was sort of a combination of two things where is the technology mature enough to provide, you know, some kind of a temporary power uh, supply that can run long enough, um, be transportable and be economical. And then is there a business model that you can pair with that to make it successful? And, uh, so far it's, it's looking really good. Yeah. So tell me about the business model. If you, if you can share a little bit about it. So what is it that exactly that you guys are looking to do? Are you looking to compete or be a part of like kind of the dealer service network to do rental services? Are you guys getting into the sales where this would be permanent or, or what is your kind of business model that you're looking to take to market? Yeah. So it's, uh, We'll say it's a pretty ambitious scope. Um, we're both right now in OEM, uh, where we design, develop, manufacture our own systems. Um, but the go-to-market strategy is through the uh, rental model. And so typically for construction equipment, um, general contractors don't actually own the diesel generator assets. They rent them. Um, they rent them, they get put on site. And then when they run out of fuel, uh, they call on a truck to drive on over and refuel the generators. And then they you know, keep going that way. And our business model is, you know, very similar where you rent these units out, but instead of a diesel refueling truck coming out to refuel them, uh, we come and just swap the unit out with the fully charged one, bring back the discharged one to the rental yard and charge it back up for the next customer. And so, you know, with that, you're essentially getting all the benefits of uh, battery swap type of architecture uh, without any of the heavy infrastructure. And for you guys... Are you guys then putting out a fleet of, of service technicians that would actually haul these to site, pick up the other one? And then I'm guessing you guys have some type of uh, fast charging solution at your facility or you're utilizing like Tesla fast charging network or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's, that's pretty close. So we, um, we remotely monitor the state of charge of all these battery packs. And then you can pretty easily predict uh, when they're going to be running out of power or getting kind of close to that. And so we come in and schedule this this exchange uh, in the off hours, so it's non disruptive. Um, 
So drivers come out with a fully charged one, take the discharged one back to the rental yard. And then we're leveraging the same EV charging infrastructure. And so you can either, you know, trickle charge on like an AC outlet, or you can, you know, DC fast charge from sort of the, the unit economic side of it. Uh, trickle charging, I think is a lot easier on the grid. And uh, we have, we'll say the slack time in the model uh, to be able to slow charge these things. Uh, so it's not too taxing. So barriers to entry or obstacles that you guys have encountered, I'm guessing there's some, has it been behavioral? Uh, behavioral, as in the client is saying that the product's too new or it's not proven, or what have you guys kind of come across when it comes to? Because this is very new, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's very new, and I guess just to kind of to mention some of the capabilities without getting into it too much. Um, the target market we're going after is sort of the the thirty five to seventy five kVA generator market. Okay, and as far as run times, I mean it. it it's all relative to how fast you discharge the battery, but uh, you know your your worst case discharges for those types of loads are eight to sixteen hour runtimes. And what we find on a lot of these job sites is you know they need the power capability for these occasional peaks, but their actual you know average power is really low. It's probably in the neighborhood of about you know ten kilowatts, and so that paired with a six hundred kilowatt hour battery. You can do the math on it, you know, with working hours, but they should run for probably about, you know, one to two weeks, depending on application uh, before needing to get swapped out. So it's, it's not necessarily this short-term emergency backup application. It's really mobile long-term storage. Yeah, I, I see kind of similarities in, in our industry. A lot of our clients are electric utility generation facilities, distribution, transmission, and often they'll have, say, an outage where they're going to do a plan change out. And um, usually what I see happen there is, is one of a few things. But one thing that is very well known in the industry is they'll bring a battery trailer. So it's a trailer they'll haul in. It's got a rectifier, some batteries and stuff in there. And and just from what you've explained so far, I almost see your product as a kind of alternative to even that whole build out where you build the whole trailer out where you can bring in, you know, your actual inverter and battery system all kind of built together. Um, is that anything that you guys have explored yet or is it something in the future? That I would say that kind of falls into the future side. So we're, we're really trying to de-risk the execution and go to market. And so we're, we're focused on off-grid applications to get out of the gate. Um, longer term, absolutely, this could be used as a grid storage asset with, you know, you, you can, we'll say, make some modifications to the inverter, make it a grid tie inverter. So you've got the bi-directional capability. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, we're really going after that, these high, uh, I guess, high energy cost markets that they just, they don't have any other solutions and they haven't had any other options other than, you know, burning fossil fuels to, to do their job. Yeah. So from a from a a applications range, um, because you guys are going to be doing the changeouts, is this something that you're deploying primarily in California? I know you mentioned some of the the, the weather events there. Is this something that you're looking to deploy there? Um, something to be utilized maybe during fire season and different events like that for emergency responders, or, or where are you guys at as far as like deploying and your ideas there? Yeah, so we're we're going into our uh, pilot phase of development um, towards the end of 2022 is when I would say that's the earliest there's going to be any kind of ramp uh, for production. 
Um, we'll be starting along the West Coast, uh, you know, starting local in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, likely expanding out to uh, Los Angeles next, San Diego, San Diego Seattle, uh, uh, Portland, sort of along the West Coast communities. And then, you know, going from there, we've, uh, we've seen a lot of interest um, from a lot of different applications. And so right now we're just hyper-focused on commercialization. Absolutely. I, I definitely see down the road for the battery backup systems, those trailers that I know a lot of our clientele work with uh, and even emergencies. But I also see maybe down the road of, uh, have, have you guys thought about a permanent solution or is everything that you're thinking is going to be mobile? Or are you planning to take on, you know, one larger diesel generators above 75 kVA um, and, and as well as some of the permanent installs that are there as a secondary backup system? Yeah, I, I guess there's uh, the sky's the limit as far as applications go. Uh, everyone needs power at the end of the day. And we'll say for uh, some of the larger applications, we'd be looking at just paralleling gensets to or, you know, our, our mobile power units to get the higher power levels. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you need to have a, a good sizing ratio between the max capability of the inverter and how big the battery is. You know, or else you get into a situation where it doesn't last long enough. And now, you know, if if you have only a half hour or one hour of runtime, it's starting to look more like backup power rather than the main power. So with your inverters, are are you guys building and designing those? Are you integrating those? They're they're built into the trailer from what I understand. And are those selectable voltages to where you can actually satisfy whether it's 483 phase or some of the other VACs out there? Or do you guys have a specific trailer for each one of those applications? That's a great question. Um, so we are uh, working with a, uh, we'll say a power module supplier where it's more of a joint development where we do a lot of the packaging and integration, um, but the core power electronics is done by an outside supplier. Uh, and we have a, a, we'll say a very unique uh, topology where we can reconfigure this inverter to, you know, output any kind of voltage, voltage uh, frequency phase shift that you want. Um, so we're not really fixed to, you know, any limitation. Um, the base product is going to have a, a voltage selector switch for 480, 208, and 240. Those are kind of the, the predominant voltages we see out there. But, you know, it, it's literally you change the software and it can do, you know, 50 hertz, you know, European voltage. Is that software, is that on the front of the actual product or is that something that, you know, you guys have an app that you're coming out to market or something that they put on their, uh, their computer? Yeah, right, right now it's on, we'll say the, the back end of it. Um, but in the future there, you know, it's just a matter of uh, making a simple user interface for, you know, someone to go in and set what they want. And, you know, we, we went through the, the Wikipedia of different voltages and frequencies, you know, throughout the whole world and we didn't find any that we couldn't make. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're targeting a specific area here in, in the United States to start and then branching out. I mean, I th it's going to be pretty similar across the United States when it comes to those different applications. Um, when it comes to your actual um, bringing them out to market, is that almost like a, a the customer would say buy the, the product up front or buy the service up front and it's all built in? Or are those like add-ons that you're looking to do um, where the customer could charge it themselves, keep it for a long-term duration, or you guys can offer them the rotational, hey, we'll come out and automatically change this out 
Is it one yeah. or the other? Or are you guys? Uh, it's it's both. So there's, I guess, you know, in the we'll say the the pricing it hasn't been totally fixed yet. Uh, but you know, there's really two components to it. One is the fixed rental fee. You know, you're you're renting something or an asset, and that uh, uh, that goes. You know, that's a pretty standard business model. And then on the charging side, people can charge themselves if they want. Uh, everyone's going to have a different situation, um, but it works off of standard EV charging infrastructure. So if they you know, if they have a uh, low power connection to whatever their job site is, it can sit there and trickle charge all day, uh, no problem. Um, if they want to go and hook it up to a truck and tow it to a, a DC fast charge station, they can do that too. Um, but, you know, we feel that these customers just, they want power, they want to focus on doing their job. And the, the swapping service is, you know, going to be awfully convenient for them. Yeah. Yeah. Even just talking to you, I, I see so many different applications, you know, temporary events and different things that you guys are probably going to be called upon in the near future to be able to satisfy. So when you see the company and, and where you guys have gone, I know you said you, you kind of started with an idea to where it is now. And um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you guys just moved into a large facility more recently, right? A new headquarters. What has that process been like, kind of the validation that this idea really has something going for you guys. I guess the the best way to describe it is we haven't really done any marketing. And every time we talk to any kind of customer, they want it now and they want as many of them as they can get. You know, as you mentioned, events and entertainment, that's just another one of the potential applications. You've also got the entire industry in Hollywood. Uh, they're all obviously, you know, very sensitive to noise. Uh, they've got full-time gen set operators. They have to run hundreds of feet of cable just into the studio set. And here we can come in with a solution that you can drag inside a building, turn it on, uh, and you know, run a, a studio set next to it. Yeah, I mean that, that's just phenomenal. So when you know, we 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 were kind of joking around and about the uh the name of the podcast, you know, disruptor, like are a lot of these disruptors are just game changers. I know we had thrown around, but Yours really does seem to be a major disruptor in so much that I even think um, Generac just came out with something very similar, but different than what you're doing. So clearly, either they've picked up on what you're doing over there, or they see this for themselves, finally, that uh, moving away from fossil fuels to having this built-in integrated product. Where do you think you guys are going to stack up? being one of the earliest adopters that I've ever heard of with this, you're so far along in all of your development. Um, like you said, coming out with production and, and, and everyone that reaches out to you wants one now. Where do you think you'll be in the next five to 10 years? Have you thought much about that? We are already uh, looking for a second uh, manufacturing facility that'll be 10 times bigger than our first one. Okay. So, <laughs> we've, got, we've got big aspirations. Um, and I, I'd say you know, relative to other competitors in the market, I guess there's kind of two aspects of it. You know, some of the things that make this business model and product really exciting is we're not waiting around for some, you know, technology advancement to happen. Everything is already there, uh, but the level of execution is uh, pretty sophisticated. And so it's going to be very difficult for others to put together a product with similar performance capabilities at the same price point. And that's what kind of where we, we really see the competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a great way. I don't have anything else for you, so that's a great way for me to end it here. Uh, anything before you leave about you know what people should think about when they think about your company or where they should go and try to find you guys and check this out? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you can come check out our website at moxieandpower.com. Uh, I think over the next two to three months, uh, we're going to be less and less stealthy and, and start to uh, release more information about the product and the service. So, so stay tuned. I'm really excited to see what you guys become in the future, Alex. Thanks so much for the time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of DC Power Hour. We hope you had as much fun as we did today talking about these industry disruptors and and evolutionary uh, innovations. Um, So join us next time when we'll check out our very own George Peterson and Alan Byrne, who is the founder, uh, one of the co-founders of BatCon. And George was a a panel speaker there this year. So we're going to talk all about BatCon and uh, what what we might have missed if we weren't there and and how it went and, and where it's going. So thanks again. We'll talk to you later. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.